today's episode, I welcome in RJ Singh, who is the host of the Ultra Habits podcast. RJ is an executive and ultra endurance athlete, family man, and is dedicated to the pursuit of self-mastery. His mission is to lead by example and share the ultra habits needed to achieve ultra performance in all areas of your life. It is his firm belief that through commitment and absolute dedication to the evolution of our mind, body, spirit complex, we as high-performing and competitive professionals can grow and prosper in all areas of our lives. To achieve this, we require intention, discipline, and solid habits. His own journey involved chronic dysfunction, which included violence, crime, youth detention, jails, and chronic addiction. With the support of mentors and frameworks, he embarked on the path of overcoming. Through his own experiences, he developed frameworks which empowered him to rebuild and refocus his mind, body, and spirit, which in turn have led to limitless possibilities. Through his own example and his interviews on his show, he will provide you the tools in the form of ultra habits that will enable you to perform at your optimum. RJ says in our pursuit to achieve this, we require ultra habits to ensure that we are continually optimizing all areas of our lives. His intention is to cover the gap of knowledge they left out in your business school. The inner and outer game required to sustain year-on-year results whilst evolving into the better you. So I hope you all enjoy this conversation I had with RJ. And without further ado, please welcome in RJ Singh. RJ, welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you. Yeah, man. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, thanks for getting up early for me. I uh, I certainly appreciate it. So, um, yeah, it was a it was a tough one this morning, Brian. It was because uh, <laughs> it's winter here, so it was about a three a.m. wake up, and I woke up and I was like, oh, and I was, <laughs> but see, I already had everything packed in my car, right? So everything's like I'm fully committed, right? So we we got to the office, we're here, and I'm glad we made it. So. What time do you normally wake up in the morning? Yeah, that varies. So I, we have a very fluid situation in the house right now. My wife is starting a business, a hair salon, which is intense because she's remodeling the venue. I'm a little bit more fluid and, and I guess flexible in terms of my schedule, but I don't wake up the same time every day. Uh, depending on the level of work. So if I know that generally in the morning when my daughter wakes up, I'm the one that wakes up with her. She wakes up around seven and then my son will wake up later and it's all about getting the kids ready for school. I like to, especially on days that I have a lot of work, wake up around, I don't know, 4.30 or 5. But it's interesting because I don't want to wake anyone up in the house. Mm-hmm. What I do is I already have a corner set up in the living room the night before. I go into the living room quietly, put a blanket on myself, and I work solid for about two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. And that way when I wake up, like I've already got a lot of stuff out of the way and I don't feel like I'm under the pump. And then I can kind of be a little bit more present with my kids. On days where we're not so flat out, and I know I've got a little bit more flexibility, I'll sleep in with my wife. Mm. And what that enables me to do is it means that the night before, I can hang out with her later because she's a night owl. 
So the problem for me is if I wake up consistently at 4.30 or 5 a.m. every morning, I have to sacrifice time with my wife at night because I need to go to bed early. And that compounded sacrifice can really start to impact our relationship, right? So it's, I, I guess that's a long answer as to why I'm not consistent with my wake-up time. Obviously, it's not ideal, but it's a decision I made on based on what's required in terms of spending time with my wife the night before, waking up early for my kids and getting as much work done as possible, right? So it's a bit of a flexible situation. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, that there's a lot there that we can go into, especially around the uh, the sacrificing of sometimes it's not going to be perfect. Like you could set up the schedule like this is how I'm going to do it. But unfortunately, things come up or as you mentioned, hey, the, the relationship with my wife or my kids is very important. So I need to change a little bit of how I like to potentially do it to be able to make it work for the greater good of the family, right? So we have to be willing to have those changes in place. Particularly when you know you're the, I mean, my wife is disciplined, but I'm extremely disciplined with, and, and particularly with sacrifice. Like I'm very good at sacrifice. So I know that if anyone's going to do it, it's kind of got to be me. And I think that's, should be the situation for all of us. Like it's all about us taking the first step in, in responsibility and accountability instead of kind of expecting others. Like, you know, I don't expect my wife or my kids to kind of augment the way they operate. I'm, I'm pretty clear that it needs to be me. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> it all starts with me. Right. So I think, yes, yeah, it's a, it's, it, it is a big topic, particularly for parents. And, you know, I would definitely want to get into, you know, habits or and talk about that throughout this conversation. How often do you and your wife communicate on these types of things? Hey, these are the things we want to accomplish this week. These are when we want to, I don't know if there's a date night you always have planned, whatever it is. How often do you communicate on those important things with your family? Yeah, I mean, let me say this. When we're not communicating and we're on autopilot, you know, like I, I have recently felt for the last couple of weeks, we've been on autopilot because she's kind of knee deep in the salon and I'm just kind of doing what needs to be done in terms of holding down the fort. And also I'm the primary income earner, right? So I've got a lot of different things going on. And I tend to be quite sensitive to when we're not connected to the extent that I feel like I think we should be. I find for us that it is critical every night to go to bed at the same time and sit in the bed and we might read, but we have a conversation. And that conversation creates connection without the distraction and the madness of the kids. And I find that we have to have that time. And if we, we reduce that time day in, day out. We start to become a little bit disconnected. And, and I'm not a fan of watching TV together. Like, I don't like TV anyway, but we'll watch TV on, let's say, the weekend together because I'll, I'll watch TV on the weekend. But I find spending time together in front of the TV isn't actually really spending time together connecting. So I find when we're intentional about going to bed at the same time, 
having those conversations that are, you know, they start a bit high level about our day and how our day went, but then it drops into more intimate conversations. That then creates that level of connection, which I feel is ideal for our relationships. Mm. I find when we're not doing that, we start to kind of drift apart. And I know relationships, they're like that. You come together and you kind of drift apart, but I think it's incredibly important to to come together more often than staying apart, obviously, which creates issues long-term. Well, I think, you know, going back to the the habits, because we always think individually, selfishly, like, oh, I got to improve my habit of this, or I got to have a better morning routine here or do this. And, and what we're talking about here, I think is so important is what are the habits you have with your relationships? What are the habits you have with your wife or your kids? And are you putting those structures in place? Because I think, again, as you said, if you're kind of the leader in that, they're going to start building better habits as well, right? They're going to start uh, being attuned to that. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I think we have to be the change that we want to see around us. And quite right. I think that, you know, particularly as an endurance athlete or as an individual performer, it's very easy to orientate habits towards optimization of self. But sometimes having that perspective comes at the detriment of the group, right? Like I know a lot of divorce endurance athletes, incredibly disciplined, but they weren't disciplined or didn't have a holistic view of a successful life. Like for them, a successful life was being able to run a fast marathon or being able to do, you know, to do an Ironman under a certain time. But to achieve that level of performance, they had to sacrifice other areas of their lives. And a lot of the times that's the family. And so I think it's really important to, particularly if family and, and you know, children and, and, you know, relationship with your spouse is important, you've got to widen that view of success and those habits have to be orientated towards the success of the group, not yourself only. And sometimes they're, they are at odds with each other. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, that's part of the balance, right? Figuring out how to balance that is, that's always the struggle I think we all go through. You know, when do I have the me time? When do I have the things that's important selfishly? But then also, when do I have to sacrifice as you're mentioning, hey, I got to sacrifice certain times for sleep, because that's when I can hang out with my wife and, and ultimately kind of circles us back to that sacrifice piece, you know? Mm, that's right. I'm going to ask because I'm extremely curious. How are you going to do 11,000 burpees in 24 hours? Yeah, uh, or is that the goal? 11,000 burpees? Yeah, in 24 yeah. Hours? I think I'm, I think I'm going to go for more because I just want to make sure that the record doesn't get broken immediately because I'm sure someone's already training to break <laughs> that record. Uh, the so current what's the record current... is 10,865. Okay, 10, 000... 10, okay. So, uh, you know, like, I'm really, really uh, good at repetition and I'm a pretty good endurance athlete. Like, I've got a good engine. I've got the physicality is, is on point in terms of uh, doing burpees, right? Like I'm light. I'm, you know, like uh, 
all, all that stuff is good, like in terms of just the, the basics, like the, the structures are there. In terms of breaking the record, it's just scalability, right? So, you know, I've adopted an ultra endurance runner's mindset to how I train and how I go about this, you know, so I'm doing one week on, one week off. I've been sick for the last couple of weeks. I did about 30 minutes of burpees yesterday and I was like pretty fatigued considering that, you know, two weeks ago, the interesting thing with the burpees is you, you lose fitness quickly, you know, like if you're not consistently on it, you really lose it. But I guess to answer your question, it's just about the right preparation, the right training and, uh, and yeah, just getting after it, man. Could you share, and the reason I asked this actually just came up, our, we were talking prior about our mutual friend with Dale and we were just talking because we were kind of relating to preparation on the standpoint of, you know, he ran a hundred mile race. He only finished 63 miles and it was because he only ran during his training. He didn't realize he had to do more like actual weight training and, and leg days and stuff like that. So I'm kind of curious, can you share some of the aspects of like what the preparation kind of looks like? Like, is it just burpees? Is it, is it certain weight training? What's your nutrition? I'm just kind of curious yeah. like, how you think about this because you've never done 11,000 burpees before in 24 yeah. hours. So how do you think about it? Like having that goal and then how do you work backwards doing it? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Like I, as an endurance runner, I would say that I've always been underprepared with nutrition and it was only towards the end that I started really getting into strength training. Like I was very much into strength training prior to being engulfed in ultra running. And then when I started ultra running, I started running to the point where I stopped doing strength training and actually needed the strength training because you're like, oh, I just need to get the kilometers in, right? And because you're not a professional athlete, you choose the running over, let's say, strength training where you actually need the strength training as you start to run more because you get prone to industry, in, industry and cramps, injury and cramps. And that's what Dale was talking about. And I've made those mistakes a million times with nutrition and, and strength training. I've generally used my mind to pull me through every race. In terms of the burpees, I had a conversation with Mark Devine. I was on his podcast and I didn't know that he had the team record uh, him and some other Navy SEALs and some of the, the PT people, they did a, uh, a team event for 9-11. And I just found that out when I was on his podcast. So offline, he connected me with uh, one of his trainers and, and she kind of gave me some insight into what I would need to do in terms of preparation and, and the mindset behind it. it. In terms of the nutrition part, I'm experimenting with it because I haven't yet figured out during the event, you know, am I going to smash out a lot of burpees and take long breaks? Am I going to shoot for shorter breaks? Like I'm still figuring that piece out. I, I can eat and exercise at the same time. And that's the experience of being an uh, endurance runner. In terms of how I'm training right now, I'm, I'm doing one week on, one week off and I'm doing like a long session at the end of that week that I'm on. So uh, before I got sick, I did a four hour session of about 3000 burpees. Wow. Right. So at that pace, I should be right to get after the record. I'm doing strength training. I mean, a lot of the burpees, sorry, a lot of the movement with the burpees 
is awkward on your body after a long time. So you have to strengthen your wrists, your abs, you know, you you start to find that your, your, uh, your muscles above your knees start to get sore, uh, um, below your quads, above your knees, you start to feel it in your glutes. So the week that I have off, I'm doing a lot of strength training and stretching, mm. right? And and then I'm doing some running because I miss it. So I'm using that week that I have off to really fortify the week that I'm on. Mm. That's kind of working for me right now. What it, Could you explain, because as a CrossFitter, I, I know we do burpees all the time, but the actual like that you have to do for the world record? Is it chest on the ground with probably thighs touching? And then do you have to jump when you get to the top? And what, what's the, kind the of the saving, requirements? The, yeah, yeah. now the saving grace with the, the Guinness world record for burpees is they don't want you to do chest down. Okay. Which I actually initially found harder because it, I think they think it's injury prone. I, that's what the feedback I had from uh, Mark Devine and uh, the team at Seal Fit. But it, it's effectively uh, plank, kick out, jump, plank position, kick out, jump. So it's everything without the push up. I guess. I guess if you were to do a push up, that in itself would be a whole nother feat, right? Like if you're trying to. Uh, do the push up or whatever, but for whatever reason they've left that out. So um it's more about having stable core, stronger core, kicking out, jumping up. It was funny because I had a guy who a friend of mine that was he's heavier and he was doing it with me and he was dropping to the ground to push because he found it easier yeah. because of his weight. Uh, whereas for me, I'm I'm light. I'm like 66, 67 kilos. I don't, I don't remember what that is in pounds, but so uh, yeah, that that's the situation there in terms of the form that they expect. Mm -hmm. What what ultimately made you want to do this? I mean, there's a million records you could have done. Why yeah. this one? Yeah, before I had actually, I I had an application approved for 24 hour on a treadmill, which. Uh, a guy I know here in Australia had the record and it was broken by a Lithuanian dude who's just recently broke the 24-hour track record. He's an amazing athlete, uh, incredible story uh, because he wasn't an athlete. He was like kind of um, dysfunctional. But I had this record approved to do a run on the treadmill and I just kind of knew that it wasn't, going to work because of the level of training required in terms of running and how much time that would take me away from the kids. Like I just started to realize that level of sacrifice wouldn't be possible right now. And we moved, we bought a house in a, in a beautiful part of uh, Victoria, Melbourne in a mountain range, and it's very cold. And our first winter, which has been the winter that passed, we kind of were shocked in terms of the le level of cold and rain and we were stuck inside a lot. And it was a bit of a difficult period because of the level of compounded change for our family. We had lots of things going on. We moved, there was lots of drama moving here through COVID and kind of just unfamiliar territory. The kids were struggling to adjust and I was going through a bit of a, a rough patch and it was like a really shitty day one day. 
and I just jumped to the ground and started doing burpees. It was like I was having a really bad day. And burpees was something that was always in my repertoire, particularly from uh, the time I had done uh, in in um, in jails and in prisons and stuff like that. Like I had spent a lot of time doing burpees, uh, particularly one uh, one um, time I was incarcerated for about six months. We were on twenty three hour lockdown, and the only thing available was burpees. And so it kind of it came to me. You know, I'm going through this rough patch. I can't go outside. I need to move my body. I started doing burpees and I did burpees for like 45 minutes. And then I realized that this was what I was going to do. And, and for me, it wasn't only about where I was. Like I knew that I was in a, in a, in a bit of a difficult situation, but I figured I could use it as a crucible to, to go through and put myself through something challenging, but it's also you know, we're, we're doing it for charity, right? So we're trying to raise a million dollars for mental health. So I figured I could make this bigger than myself. And burpees is accessible to everyone. It sucks. It sucks enough for me. Everyone hates them. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is what I'm going to do. And it, and it felt right. And, you know, it just came together. Like I can do burpees and be around the kids. You know, I, ha- I can be home. I don't have to go for four or five hours, six hour runs. And so this is, you know, became the new crucible for me. Uh, physicality, doing hard stuff physically always transforms uh, my mindset. And, and, I, and, and for me, I just knew it was time to get back to something physically, you know, challenging and difficult. What do you, for yourself, when you get in those ruts, when you get in those, you know, points of despair or, you know, depression, whatever, you know, we can call it a lot of different things. How do you get out of it? Have you have you put techniques in place to get out of it quicker? Or is it still a struggle for you? I think that um, I, you know, the, the the situation that had hit when we moved, I hadn't been in a space like that for many years. So for me, it kind of was very. It took me, and, and it it was compounded. It, it took a, I'd say, a, a year of challenging situations uh that come like that that all started from the move during covid and it it kind of slowly became increasingly uh difficult i I, i'd say and so it kind of like i i at, at certain point i was like oh wow this is i haven't been here in a long time and so for me there's a few things i think I don't use, I'm an optimist, but I don't use false positivity to try to shift the way I feel, think, particularly when I'm negative or when things aren't going well for me psychologically. I think that I've got to really be and accept where I'm at without judgment or shame. And that's the first thing, like being okay with not necessarily being okay. I think from there, the critical piece is not isolating within my own mind and psychology, right? So I've got to reach out and I've got to really connect it 
network. I mean, I'm in 12 step recovery and, you know, I'm, 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 I'm always having pretty deep conversations with people as to where they're at or where I'm at. So I think a problem shared is a problem halved. Um, and then I've got to do the things that really drive that self-care piece, right? So for me, it's moving my body. If I've got to get back into my body. Generally, when I'm feeling depressed, it's because I'm living inside of my mind and I'm just kind of become my psychology. So for me, physicality helps me get back into my body, right? Like I'm pushing myself back into my body. So I think, you know, the physicality, the right conversations, um, reaching out to the network, focusing on the spirit. Like I've got a, you know, I've got a spiritual regime in terms of how I manage that whole piece. I think that's really important, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it's wise to, um, you know, engage in this kind of false positivity movement and, and, and not accept where you're at when you're feeling suboptimal. Right. I think I, I just don't think that works to try to beat yourself into kind of feeling better or some level of false positivity. And I certainly don't do that. Yeah, I agree a lot. I'm probably similar to you with, you know, kind of being an optimist, but at the same time, recognizing, hey, we have our challenging periods instead of just shoving it under the rug. Let's let's expose it. Right. Let's bring it out to light. Let's think about it. Let's realize it's there so that we can actually document it and then figure out a way to get past it. You know, it's, you can't just, you can't just push it away because it's going to resurface and resurface. Right. Well, I mean, that's the problem, right? I think with, um, and particularly when you actually have a strong mind, you know, when, when you have a strong mind and you latch on to a negative thought pattern that kind of loops around and you try to push it away and it keeps looping around through that resistance, we kind of fortify it in many ways because what's happening is we're trying to push it away. We're trying to ignore it. The mind, unfortunately, doesn't work that way. Yeah. I had this weird, uh, um, I don't know if this is a metaphor analogy. You ever see the movie A Beautiful Mind with Russell yeah. Crowe? Yeah. I, so I kind of, I don't know, a few years ago, I kind of thought about this, like my thoughts, again, as I was going through a lot of change and, and, and had a lot of... Um, I want to say depression, although you could probably call it that. I was just kind of, again, becoming a different person and wanted to get past a lot of the old thoughts. Anyways, I kind of think of it like Russell Crowe's character in that, you know, where he has like these imaginary people throughout his life. They document the movie. Well, at the end, he recognizes they're there, but he accepts that they're there and he has them at arm's length, but they're still there. And it's kind of the same thing we're talking about is like, we re if we recognize that our, our thoughts, the bad thoughts, the, the, the depressive states, whatever, are there, we can control them if we recognize and accept them. If we push them away, as you're saying, they're going to keep circling back harder and harder and harder. But if we can accept them that, hey, they're there, I know it, I'm not a bad person because of it, I can now work through it and, and become better, hopefully, because of it. I don't know. That's a weird kind of visual. No, no, I, no. no. <laughs> I, I, think it's, I, I think the game changer... Um, is when we recognize that we're not responsible and there's no judgment as to the thoughts that come up. I think where we come unstuck is when we start to feel responsible 
or have judgment as to what's coming up within our psychology. And I think that we need to, uh, well, if we're skillful, we recognize that thoughts that are coming up are beyond our responsibility and we're not accountable for what's coming up and therefore there shouldn't be any judgment my 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 mentor calls it the functioning of 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 the universe like things that you know he's he's a very uh, he's a philosopher right and and for him you know our thoughts are no different to objects and they 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 come up and and they just exist and we're not responsible or accountable to those thoughts and what comes up however we we respond right and and having that response is what then empowers us to um operate right so i suppose i've got anger that comes up for me and uh it exists within my psychology I'm not responsible for that anger and there shall be no judgment for that anger coming up. It, it's, it's a function of who I am, my history, my biases, the programming, whatever. And I'm not trying to fix that because to go into that is very murky. So I accept it is the given. Anger has come up. The question is, do I become that anger? Right. And that's where the responsibility and anger or sorry, the responsibility and accountability is. And that's, I think, where we could be skillful. So I think it it I think where we become depressed and we get lost in our psychology is when we try to fix our psychology through more thought. And, and mental gymnastics, mm -hmm. which for me has never been a solution. Yeah. Yeah. I, oh, I, I like that a lot. It's I kind of, I don't know why when you were mentioning that, it made me think of, you know, a lot of stoicism around, you know, you can't control a situation, but we can control our reaction to it. And I, and I like the word control, meaning I'm not going to solve it. It's not going to be like infinitely better. I'm never going to deal with it again. But if I can control it for that period of time, I can get past it. If it comes yeah. up again, I can control. I try to teach. I don't know how old your kids are, but I have a almost 11 year old and trying to teach him a lot about that around anger and you know, how he, how he can kind of deal with his emotions better. And that's like a quote we go over that saying over and over again, uh, because I, I want him to realize that he's in full control if he wants to be right. If he wants to accept it. Um, let me ask you this question here. You brought up something earlier about being incarcerated. You've talked about the 12 step program you're in. Are those interconnected in any way? Are those different are those linear paths to get one to the other? Are those totally separate? Can you share anything on that? No, no, no. They, they, yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in California. I became a ward of the state quite young uh, as a juvenile, and uh, you know, addiction. It was just you know, addiction took me through into some weird and not wonderful places, man. Like it, it was, it took me into. Um, yeah, institutions into crime, into into uh, drug dealing, and all kinds of things, man. So, you know, like I had 
tried to get sober since the age of 15, really, 15, 16. And um, I had been exposed to 12 steps at the age of 16 in Oakland, um, in the Bay Area. And ultimately, when I decided to get sober, I think I was about 28 or 27 or something like that, I knew where to go. And that was here in Australia. So I, I, I was in Australia and, you know, things got really bad. Like they, they kind of all reached a crescendo. And I, uh, I think survival instinct kicked in. Some call it the grace of God. Some talk, it, you know, they call it an epiphany, moment of clarity, whatever, man. But uh, yeah, I decided to get sober and, and, I, and I went to 12 steps because I knew it worked. So that, that's kind of the connection there. Did was that a one and done? Like once you went into that, you've been sober since, or did you have a relapse? Yeah, so I've been sober, completely sober for since 2010. So uh, that's complete sobriety, and uh, it's just become a way of life. And and that was the beginning. That was you know I know that the podcast is about getting started. I mean, there were two things that happened at that moment in 2010. One, I had this moment of clarity, and in this deep surrender to the fact that I could never successfully drink or do anything again. Like I, I just knew it was, it was a, it was a transformational moment. You know, I had, I had wanted to get sober many times before, but this was a moment where the ego shattered sufficiently enough for me to see who I was and what I've become. And the desire to drink was immediately lifted in that moment. But at the same time, I met a couple entrepreneurs and one of them was quite young and we're business partners now. Uh, we, you know, he, he was a, a, a majority shareholder in a, in a pretty dynamic company. And I, I was a sales rep in that company and he, had come in as the GM. He was a CFO. So he was in a different department. He came in as GM and, you know, I, my drinking was at a, was peaking. And I think I resigned like four in the morning. I was drunk. And he called me the next day and he realized I was drunk and he, and, you know, we had a conversation and we met up and I told him everything. Like I just, bare, I, I laid bare everything, my whole history and everything. And he decided to take it on. Like he thought I, I was really good at what I did. He, he knew I was super inexperienced, but he's like, you've got something different. And why don't I help you find a path to success using the skills that are kind of innate to you? Is it someone that, you know, can hustle and move and groove and, and sell stuff? And he was a natural teacher. He had set up a grad program within this business. Like he just, I had met the right person at the right time. And my drinking had reached a real peak in terms of insanity. So after him and I had that conversation, I was like, you know what? I'm going to get sober. Because here's an opportunity that I, I don't remember having in a really long time, like an opportunity to become something, a different opportunity to a different identity. And I took it. So those two things, having the right people and deciding to 
um, embark on a process through 12 steps that would help me uh, just live a different way. You know, so I think two things were presented to me. Purpose, like here's a pathway to success, to success. Here's a pathway away from the way that you've been living through business. And the second th thing there was having then the structure and framework of 12 steps to support the character development required to go on that journey. Have had the demons creeped up in the last 13 years? Like, did they creep oh, up all the time? time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not to drink. Not to drink. Um, but I mean, you, you got to, you got to, you got a life. You know, I, I arrived in Australia when I was 26. I couldn't go back to the U.S. I was born here. And I had never become a, a, a U.S. naturalized citizen. And so because of my life of crime, I had issues with my green card. You know, I end up in Australia at 26. It's pretty much a foreign country. And you're talking about someone that lived a lifestyle that was pretty ruthless. You know, I sold drugs. I was an emotional shell. You know, like I used people, I controlled my environment. I made sure I won. You know, life was really Machiavellian for me. Like it was all about use or be used. Um, and so now I decide to get sober and I've got a value system and a way of living that is completely distorted. And I had to unpack all that. Like, the, you know, I couldn't be a father or a husband today with the mindset that I had when I was 26 or 27 or 28. Like, there, there is no way. And does, does that mindset and do certain characteristics and behavior traits creep back? Yeah. Is it hard to see? particularly now after being sober and doing so much work. Yeah. Because a lot of it's more nuanced now. It's not, it's not obvious. Like I'm not out there, you know, doing crazy shit. And like, I'm, I'm a very good member of society and, you know, I help people. And, and so, you know, I can quickly drink my own Kool-Aid and think that my shit doesn't stink anymore. Right. Because look at me, look what I'm up to. However, the dysfunction is there. It's just more nuanced. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have very good systems in recovery, like the 10 step inventory. You know, we do daily inventories. I journal all the time. I have conversations with people that keep me accountable. Um, you know, the 12 step program is, it's hard. It is hard. It demands more of you than what you demand from others. So it's like the premise is we're hard on ourselves and easy on others. It's, it's a stoic like program. You are continually looking at your own shit, irrespective of what the other man or woman is doing. That's not easy. That's not easy uh, to, to hold yourself to that level of account or to be held to that level of account by let's say your sponsor or other people. 
you mentioned you mentioned a couple times during the conversation about discipline, especially with your you know your training and all that stuff, and and even discipline with how you are with your family. Has that always been something in your life? And is that was you just had to turn on a different lever to do the things you're doing today, or was that a learned behavior? I I think that in hindsight, it's a really good question, Brian. I think I think I was always disciplined, but my, that that discipline was aligned to the wrong things, mm-hmm. right? Like discipline is agnostic. You know, I I, I uh, you know a lot of these behavior traits that we think are positive, if you really think about it, are, are, are good, bad, agnostic, right? Like you can orientate discipline to the wrong means, you know? So when I was selling drugs and I was doing what I was doing, there was a lot of chaos, Brian, like, and there was a lot of alcohol use and a lot of other stuff going on. But I would say that I was very disciplined within that context, extremely disciplined within that context. I was up early. I hustled hard. I was just obsessed. I loved it. Like I, 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 and that's why I think I did really well in commerce because when I got introduced into business and, and it was like, it's legal. And I start to develop the tools to be successful in it. Like I, I just, I took to it very well because I was like, wow, this is great. This is, this is, this is like play for me. And that's what it was like when I was out there. Like I, I, I really embraced that negative lifestyle. And within that lifestyle, I was quite disciplined. I, I didn't think so at the time, but it retrospectively looking back, I actually think I was. And so I would say that, you, you know, ultra habits, right? Like that, that's, that's, my podcast that's my show like in some way and i say this all the time like i was always serving habits you know i I wasn't necessarily serving the right habits (laughs) but i was always a servant of habits and process and some level of structure but uh, those structures weren't in in positive areas brian so would you say if we're if kind of discipline is the let's call it the house, it, it, are the habits and systems, is that the foundation that the house is built on, would you say? Or would you structure it a different way? I'm just making that up on the fly, but I'm trying to think about it. Uh, I, I, I would say the house is our identity. Okay. And 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 I, I would say that different components of that house are things like discipline, habits, kind of the the structural components that uh, make up our identity, who we are, how we see ourselves. And I think that, that that's the house. So in order then, and again, tell me if I'm off here, but in order, would you say then to, cause, cause there's gonna be folks listening in that are like, RJ, that's awesome, man, what you're doing, but I'm undisciplined. I didn't have that when I was a kid. I'm just really helter-skelter. I don't know. How do I become disciplined? Would you say that's turning the dial on identity then? We have to change identity first before we can get more disciplined, would you say? No, I, I, I think that it's a symbiotic process. I think, I think that 
for someone that is really looking to shift the needle in terms of discipline, you know, my favorite way to do that is through physicality. And I think that's the best means for an individual to start to create the systems that will help them transform their identity, i.e., I call them crucibles. It's the U.S. Marine Corps concept. I think that we structure a crucible. We, 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 let's say, within the physical realm. So that might be an individual that, I don't know, sees their ideal self as a champion CrossFitter or whatever form of physicality appeals to them. And they start to, to, to work towards that identity, right? So let's just say I go to a CrossFit gym or, you know, I see a CrossFit video. I see Brian doing his thing. I'm like, wow, look at that dude. What would it be like to be like that dude? How do I become like that dude? What are the things I need to do? Right. And so we see something we aspire to be. And then we start to think, well, how do we become that? That then becomes a crucible. That then becomes a pressure cooker that will drive the systems, the habits, the processes required to get to that place as to how we ideally want to be, which is, you know, this dude, Brian, I've seen this guy, Brian, he's super fit. You know, CrossFit seems cool. Seems like something I can do. Right. So I think through creating a crucible, which would be going to a CrossFit gym, deciding to sign up, not overthinking it, getting involved. And then what are the things that happens at CrossFit? Well, oh God, these guys train at five in the morning. They train at six in the morning. The things that I need to do to embark on that journey will create the disciplines. They'll create the structures. It's par for the course, right? So as we start to do it, we start to develop those disciplines in those systems. And then what will slowly start to happen is we will start to see ourselves as a CrossFitter. That individual that's going to the gym four or five days a week, that 6 a.m. session, that 5.30 a.m. session, that 7 a.m. session, that is consistently doing it is not only developing the disciplines, the right habits, because the situation will drive that, mm. but they're starting to transform the way they see themselves. So it goes from aspiring to be like Brian or Jane or Sally or whatever, this fantastic, amazing CrossFitter to I'm actually a CrossFitter. And once we start to see ourselves, as that, once we start to identify with the subject matter that we're actually embarking on, that's when the identity starts to transform. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that once we start to transform our identity, the way we see ourselves, the systems and habits that are supporting that will become natural, right? So for me, I'm going to do 
an hour of burpees in my office here when we get off this call. People walk by, they think it's crazy. They'll come in the office. They'll be like, wow, how do you do that? Like, like, how do you have the discipline? For me, it's not even a matter of discipline because it's how I see myself. Yeah. This is par for the course. So the things that I do, like the hour of burpees in an office at 6 or 6.30 a.m. are simply conforming to how I see myself. It's not a struggle anymore. At the beginning, it is. So I think that, you know, for anyone in your audience that really wants to transform the way they see themselves and the way they interact in the world via their identity, you have to start to transform the mechanisms, i.e. the habits and the support structures of that identity. And the way that we do that is through embarking on some really, really hard shit. And that's why you see David Goggins making such an impact. He's the best at getting people off the couch and embarking on that journey. Well, and I think you realize what, what, what Goggins, I, I think, is, yeah, he's, uh, he's a cool dude, um, is when you think about the, I was talking about this actually with Dale again earlier, is like the, the pain, like I was talking about my Just Get Started journey, like the pain of the regret of how my life was, lazy, undisciplined, um, no confidence, fear of a lot of stuff. That now was bigger than the fear of the unknown, what was coming up in the future. And that's what allowed me really to get started because I just had all of this. So I th- to going back to what you're saying is the starting is the hardest part. But if we're open to being like, listen, this is going to suck. It's going to be different. We're going to have to make some changes. But if we're open to it, we don't know what's going to happen. But we're going to kind of walk into it with the open arms versus being, you know, eh, I'm not going to do that because that looks difficult or I don't think I can do that. Well, of course you don't because you, your mindset's not there to start, right? It's a, you're, you, nailed it, you nailed it on the head, Brian. It's about being guided by curiosity. Yeah. You know, we talk about it in 12-step recovery, right? Like your misery can easily be refunded to you. We say this to new people. Like you, you know what life looks like, mm-hmm. current status. Like, but what could life look like through the other door and letting curiosity guide us versus and you know healthy bit of fear too but yeah you're right like i think i think we need to be interested in what could an alternative look like and yes you are right we have to understand and the quicker we accept that change is supposed to suck it's actually if you can learn to like that because you know that when something sucks and it's hard, that transition period, that should be a sign to you that there's gold on the other side. <laughs> yeah. And that's what the high achievers, high performers, they know that these transition processes that suck, they have trust that on the other side of that is gold. And they have trust because they've got illustrative history. And that's what a lot of newcomers to performance don't have. They don't have that illustrative history to themselves that 
sucks, yes, but if it sucks and it's hard, it probably means that there's more gold. Yeah. All right, you're, you're spot on, man. This is, a, I think, a good spot maybe to put a pin in our conversation. I'd love to have yeah. you back after you do your 11,000 burpee challenge and come on and talk about yeah. it. Would you do that? Yeah, maybe maybe I'll do it. Uh, maybe we can do it while I'm doing the burpee. Oh, no, I'm joking. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Do you <laughs> have a do you have a date set of when you're going to try to do that? Yeah, I, I'm I'm working on. So I'm going to set the date when I get back from a, a little holiday in June. But we're thinking probably around December. Oh, okay. Twenty twenty three. Yes. Okay, so come up here five or six months. All right. The the thing is, is that I could probably do it sooner but I'm trying to raise money for charity, right? So I'm I'm in this battle of like, I don't want it to go too long because I just want to get it done. But also at the same time, I want to have enough time to raise uh, money, right? So anyways, that's that's kind of the situation there. Awesome, yeah. And everyone, I think uh, it's ultrahabits.co, right? They can check you out, the that's podcast. Right. Yeah, yeah. They could go donate if they want, help support yeah, yeah. The, the mission. Awesome, man. Any final words, thoughts, ask to the audience before I let you go? No, I think I think it's a great conversation to be having, you know, just getting started. I think for anyone that's out there that is in a place where they're, you know, they're kind of in a rut or they're in a scenario where they can't seem to get mobile in terms of moving towards change, just get curious. You know, what could life look like going through the other door? I think I think getting guided by that level of uh, of thought process is really going to serve you. Awesome. Well, Arda, thank you so much, man. Thanks for getting up early for me as well. I, I certainly appreciate oh, it. No problem, Brian. Thanks for having me, man. Hey, everyone. And just one more quick thing before you head off on your day. If you're enjoying this podcast and are looking for other resources and tools to help you get started and move forward toward a happier and more fulfilling life, then I'd encourage you to head over to my website, brianandraco.com, and hit the subscribe button in the upper right corner. There you can find my newsletter and blog subscriptions, where I share insights and information around getting unstuck, perspective, mindset, relationships, habits, and much more. If you get a chance to sign up, I hope you enjoy. Thanks again for listening in, and have a phenomenal day.